Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. He kōna e pūrangi te nei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Tiki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Later on, we'll carry on our exploration of how to build a society that is more resilient to disasters such as earthquakes, this time with a look at building design and testing. But first, here's a story about some remarkable plants that should be all the encouragement you need to lift your eyes from the ground and gaze upwards next time you're in a forest. You never know. You might find a mistletoe to sneak a kiss underneath. But even if you don't, you'll discover a wonder of plants living a high-rise life. Our epiphyte guides are Victoria University of Wellington ecologist Casey Burns and PhD student Tom Dawes. We're here in Otari Wilton's bush uh, on the Canopy Walkway, which is probably one of the last remnant forests in Wellington. Uh, And up in the Canopy Walkway, we've got a great view of a whole bunch of climbing plants and epiphytes on the trees here. And yeah, it's a a beautiful forest site in the city. So there's a bit of traffic in the background because this is quite close to the road, but it's a real bird's eye view of the, the canopy of a forest. So can you point out the first epiphyte you're going to show me? Just here, this is a great little epiphyte. It's a Pyrosia alagnifolia. It's a scrambling, climbing little epiphyte. It's a lovely little leatherleaf fern. Many people probably know it. It grows all sorts of trees all around uh, New Zealand. And it just scrambles along the outer branches of most of the trees. And it lives pretty much exclusively in this habit, although it occasionally grows on some rocks and things. And it has these great little sauri here that produce all the spores. And yeah, it lives its life up in the trees, up in the canopy, unconnected to the soil and, uh, and, and the like on the forest floor. So what defines an epiphyte, Casey? I got some hint of that just then from Tom. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question in and of itself. There's lots of different types of epiphytes. So the one that Tom was just pointing to is this long scrambling thing. So one individual will occur across three or four meters of branch actually all spreading along and climbing to new heights and the one behind it see the there's there's one with shiny large leaves that look like it belongs in the forest floor it clearly looks like it's in the wrong place it really should be growing on the forest floor and that's in the genus grizzolinia what's the common name tom puku i think is the common name yeah and that one's cool it's a different type of epiphyte a hemi epiphyte because it starts its life at the tops of trees so you can see where it's rooted in a branch trunk axle and it's growing upwards it looks like a bush at the top of the tree but it's not finished growing and in fact most of its growth isn't going upwards it's actually going downwards 
So if you look carefully, you can see a bit camouflage, same color as the as the trunk, but these little roots that are extending in a in a network, working its way downwards. So that particular epiphyte has a cool strategy that it starts life at the tops of trees where there's not much soil, and it sends its roots downwards. So it grows mostly downwards to the forest floor where it can access water and nutrients in the soil below. Why does it want to be in the tree, though? Is that so it can get closer to the sunlight? Yeah, I think so. It's kind of like cheating. So this tree that it's in is uh, a rewa rewa, and it's massive. It, it extends clear above the canopy. It spent oh, probably 100, 150 years growing to reach that high to have priority access to the light. And then the puka comes along and cheats and steals all, in a way, steals all of that effort that Rewa Rewa has put into growing so tall. And it's clear at the top with access almost to full light. So, okay, we've got a thing that looks like it should be on the forest floor that's perching in a, a crook of the branches and trying to grow down. We've got the scrambling ferns spreading itself along the branches. What else can we see, Tom? Yeah, well, we can see a whole bunch of other things. One of the things I can see just over here is we can see some of these ferns hanging down are the uh, Asplenium flaccidum. I think the English name is something like drooping spleenwort because it sort of hangs down from the trees and that's quite a sort of generalist epiphyte that sort of occurs all over the bare branches um, and the bare trunk. There's a whole bunch of young ones just germinating on the trunk here. It's a generalist epiphyte that sort of can grow all over the trees and sort of tends to yeah, have this different hanging habit rather than growing upwards like the puka. How much of what you see at the tops of trees, Tom, can you see from the forest floor? Or in other words, how much do, of, of the epiphyte diversity or total diversity in the forest will you not see if you're just walking around on the forest floor instead of the forest canopy? Yeah, it probably can be about 10%. So globally, I think it's 9 to 10% of all vascular plant species grow only as epiphytes. Big representation in tropical forests, but also quite a sizable chunk of New Zealand's forests. I don't know what the exact figure is for New Zealand's forests, but there's a sizable chunk, maybe 5-10% of the species you're not going to see if you're just down on the forest floor that are going to be growing as epiphytes, particularly groups like the ferns. And we've got a handful of orchids as well that are, that are quite reliant on this type of strategy, yeah, and they're going to be up in the forest canopy. There's some great climbers up the other end of the walkway just here. If we were to perhaps walk along, there's a whole bunch of climbing rata um, that have got... Uh, some of the species might be in flower now, but uh, this is a totally different strategy in the climbing ratas. Yeah, ah, here's a great example. So there's a perching rata. Is it the southern rata that starts? Uh, I think or it's the northern, northern rata. Northern rata starts, starts up on a tree, a bit like that grisolinia. Yeah, that's also a hemiepiphyte, exactly. Yeah, it's a great uh, parallel. But it does something a little bit different than northern rata. It also can then form the tree afterwards um, once the host tree dies. But there's a whole bunch of rata species that are climbers here. And they sort of start on the forest floor and they have these little roots that grow upwards, up into the canopy. So it's sort of like an inverse strategy to the hemiepiphyte where it starts on the forest floor and they grow up. And then when they get up to the canopy, they form this vast sort of branching profusion once they're up in the happy, happy environment of the greater light that they've got up here. And they, yeah, once they've got access to that light, they've still got the access to the water on the forest floor. Whereas the other ones that are starting higher up, water must be a bit of an issue for them. Yeah, it's a huge issue. In fact, it, it makes sense of 
a lot of the things that you see that are characteristic in epiphytes in general and, and lots of different strategies. I mean, back to your question before, what is an epiphyte? Well, I mean, it's actually a really difficult thing to describe. I mean, botanists put a definition to it. But an arboreal plant becomes an arboreal plant in a bunch of different ways. Like with the rata that Tom's just pointed out, it starts on the, forest, on the forest floor and grows upwards. The puka that we saw earlier starts in the canopy and grows downwards. Then there's a whole suite that live in the canopy and stay in the canopy. They don't send roots down. They don't grow up from the forest floor. They, they start life arboreally and they end life arboreally. And... Most of them don't uh, harm the host tree at all. They're just a bit of a load, I would think. Nothing more, nothing less. So it doesn't really negatively impact the host tree, I wouldn't think. But there's a whole different class of arboreal plant that are parasites. They're called mistletoes. And they're some of the most endangered uh, conservation of concern than the rest of the epiphytes, mainly because we've introduced the brush-tailed possum, which, which eats them in droves. But those are parasites, so they live at the top of canopies, and their roots, instead of extending down to the forest floor, burrow into the architecture, the plumbing, let's say, of the host trees and steal water and nutrients from them. So a whole bunch of different strategies of how to make a living at the tops of trees. I'm thinking about Northland and I'm thinking about Kauri forests and one of the things you see a lot of up there are big astelias perched up in the tops of trees. Oh yeah, exactly. Astelias are a really important group of epiphytes. These big sort of nest epiphytes almost. They're big sort of clumps and what they do that's really awesome is they can sort of colonise these little crooks in the trees, little branch points, and when they're there, the leaves sort of capture some of the falling detritus from the canopy and they can sort of develop somewhat of a canopy soil. It's not totally equivalent to the soil on the forest floor, but it's going to break down and decompose and allow them access to some uh, nutrients from that. And, and of course, that will, to some degree, store a little bit of the rainwater that's coming through. And a lot of other epiphytes, including the great uh, hanging lycopod that, that will grow from these and will be reliant on perching lilies coming in first and sort of colonising what would have been otherwise sort of bare tree and they can grow once there's this resource of the uh, decomposing canopy soil that's in the clumps of the perching lilies. So you end up with quite a community going on up there. Yeah, that can be a real case where you've actually got some facilitation of other species coming in later. Somewhat analogous to a succession. I think famously they're called widow makers because you just really don't want to be standing Ooh, underneath them no, if they, they can, fall, they can, they fall can out grow of the tree. huge size, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So what is it about the group of epiphytes that interests you, that gets you to get students to work on them? Well, it's a whole hidden world, isn't it? I mean, most of us, when we go for a hike in the bush, we're on the forest floor, and we only see shrubs and herbs and anything that's close to us. We look up, we see the tops of trees, lots of leaves, maybe a bit of sky, but you really have to be closer to them to see epiphytes and appreciate all of their strategies of making a living. So... Without a canopy walkway like this, you don't have access to this hidden world. But once you, you do begin to appreciate them, epiphytes and plants that live on other plants are really, really cool. And they're everywhere, not only in New Zealand, but elsewhere on planet Earth. And I don't know, it's this whole hidden world that, that most people don't, don't know about. And scientifically, the same holds true, that we know far less about epiphytes than we do about plants growing on the forest floor for the simple reason that they're not on the forest floor. Now, you're doing a PhD on them, Tom. Exactly what are you looking at? 
Yeah, I'm looking at a few different aspects of uh, community structure and a few different case studies. So one cool set of work that um, uh, I've just completed in September, actually, was I was down in Beach Forest in, in Nelson Lakes National Park looking at some of the low-trunk epiphytes uh, on the different beech trees there. And what we've got in that system is a whole bunch of mosses and lichens and even smaller plants that people perhaps don't notice uh, as well as some ferns as well. The Asplenium flaccidum that um, we've got here is also in that system. And what you've also got there is a really cool epiphyte in the black sooty mould which uh, coats the trees uh, where you've got uh, honeydew being produced. So that's the red beech and the mountain beech but not the silver beech. So what you have is that the sooty mould there excludes or almost all of the epiphytes from the low trunk area and it means that you've only got a huge profusion of all these mosses and lichens on the silver beech. Another thing I've been looking at is um, we've looking at some of the uh, woody epiphytes on tree ferns and these are sometimes called accidental epiphytes or facultative epiphytes. These are plants that sometimes occur as epiphytes. You so, mean a bird poos in the wrong place, is it? <laughs> yeah, it could be that. could be brought in on a gust of wind. Some of the wind-dispersed uh, species, like kamahi, um, that uh, is, uh, is a common accidental or facultative epiphyte on, on tree ferns. Uh, and what, we, what I was looking at there is uh, what sort of species tend to be able to utilise this sort of recruitment strategy? Why are some species able to recruit on tree ferns and others are not and are, and are excluded from this niche? And basically what we found was, was the small-seeded things. So some things like kamahi and five-finger, and to a lesser extent some of the caprosma species even, will sometimes germinate on tree ferns because they've got smaller seeds. And a big-seeded thing like a hinau or a, a, a pukatea, those seeds are far less likely to catch and germinate on the tree fern trunks and, and occur as epiphytes. Do the trees ever fight back? Do they, in a sense, not want this extra load that they're having to carry? Yeah, I think with Tom's work, it's the case that the lifespan of the tree fern in the kamahi or the rada is different from the tree ferns, so they live for a much longer time. So I don't think it impacts the fitness of the tree ferns so much, but it does impact the way the forest looks. So if you walk through lots of old growth bush in New Zealand, you see these gnarled trees. Some of them are inside out or are hollow on the inside. And that's a telltale sign that it started life out as an epiphyte and grew downwards. So most kamahi and most strangling rata don't come up from a straight trunk. You can look at them from the forest floor and see openings in the trunk and weird sort of gnarled bits, and you can start to piece together, oh, if it got started on a tree fern and grew downwards, it makes sense of its gnarled appearance. So you see almost the ghost of epiphytism, if that's a word, past in the morphology of the trees down below. And I think Tom's work is important because it says that it's a major recruitment strategy in New Zealand forests. Without tree ferns, I don't think the recruitment would be the same, and certainly the way the forest looks wouldn't be the same either. I'm thinking back to Cody, though, and Cody often actually have very clean trunks, but they also have a habit of shedding their bark. So even if you tried to stick on, chances are you'd get dropped off when the bark sheds. Yeah, I certainly think there's something to do with uh, the differences in the bark morphology. And I think in Kauri and potentially also Rimu, they have big chunks of bark that can come off. And that certainly affects some of the little climbers when they're climbing up. Because often you'll see the big perching lilies in the axles of the, of the branch points. 
but you won't see as many of the climbers climbing up, particularly on some of the old Rimus, like the 800-year-old Rimu here at Otari Wilton's Bush. I can't think of any climbers scrambling up the base, and they, those Rimu often lose big chunks of, of bark over the years, and so that potentially is something that's going on. Not something I've looked at, but I, I, think, it's, I think people have shown in different parts of the world that bark morphology and these shedding bark can really reduce epiphyte load or certainly climber load in that case. Uh, yeah, so I think it can be a strategy to fight back, I suppose. Because there must be a cost to the tree in some way. You'd think so, and, and sometimes you can see evidence of it. Like just down the way, there's a big henau that grew and branched early, so it almost looks like the letter Y. One of the branches, the top branches, the top part of the letter Y, has tons of epiphytes, these big nest astelia clumps on it, and it must weigh, you know, five tons. Don't hold me to that. I don't know how much it weighs, but it's a huge amount of plant material. And you can see it's cracked the central stem of the tree. So there are instances where you can look up into the canopy and recognize that epiphytes might not be such a great thing for host trees. But there's not a lot of evidence for it. I'm, I'm not so sure most host trees, they, it might be a minor inconvenience from a fitness perspective, but I don't think it's a really huge deal. And there is documented examples of host trees having roots coming up from the forest floor and tapping into these gardens that are created by plants like Astelia using the soil that they collected, you know, they being the epiphytes. So it's not a really straightforward black or white sort of thing. On average, I bet you it's weakly negative, but nothing that really impacts the host tree all that much. It's a happy marriage, more or less. So we're quite blessed here in Otari because this is old-growth forest. This is that bit of forest that didn't get cut down, and it, that may be why it's so rich in epiphytes. Yeah, absolutely. These things take a great number of years to accumulate, um, and you need those old mature trees to support some of the larger perching lilies and some of the climbing ratas and the northern rata is only going to regenerate on large uh, rimu so you do need this uh, mature canopy forest which you don't tend to get many epiphytes in some of the earlier successional disturbed habitats and these sorts of places tend to require a number of years to regain some of the species that are lost from sort of deforestation and forest fragmentation. Yeah. Would you say it's one of the last components of forest structure to come back after human disturbance? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's highly affected by human disturbance because not only have you got to wait for the entire forest of trees to come back, you've got to wait for the seeds to be dispersed back in, these maybe missing bird dispersers. So that can be a real factor that really stops the epiphyte um, regeneration for a great many years after human disturbance, yeah. So a good measure of how well our restoration is doing around Wellington will be when you can look up in the canopy and start to see a good population of epiphytes. Yeah, I think you're right. That it's one of the last components of biodiversity to chime back in after previous pasture was let go and, and natural forest reseeds and through time it becomes what we would consider a forest, but the last component is going to be arboreal plants. Thanks, Casey. Casey Burns is an ecologist at Victoria University of Wellington and Tom Dawes is doing a PhD on epiphytes. And why not take a closer look at trunks and branches when you're out in the bush this summer? Kei te whakaronga mai kwe ki tō tātou au hori hori, hei hōtaka e pānaki a papa tuanuku, 
Tangaroa, Meirangi Nui. I'm Alison Balance and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, last week we heard from an earthquake engineer about some of the things that earthquakes in the last decade have taught us. Today our focus on developing a more resilient society looks at buildings with Canterbury University's Jeff Rogers, who starts by explaining how our expectation of what is a safe building has changed. It's dating back several decades now, but really this idea that we want to go beyond just life safety. So the Obviously the conventional thinking has been um, that you're going to have to accept some level of damage will occur during a large earthquake and to design the building with a hierarchy of strength. And that's really accepting that some damage may occur in a beam and basically that that would then uh, give way and and suffer a little bit of damage in the beam, the horizontal beam element that supports the floor, at a level of demand which is less than that which would cause damage to the column and that's really based around protecting the columns which carry the loads down to the foundation and that's been to prevent collapse and that has overall worked very well worldwide in terms of uh, preventing collapse and and allowing safe egress out of a building following an earthquake for occupants but then they as has been seen here in Christchurch and around the world um, it leads to demolition and it hinders the response of a community so trying to go beyond code minimum um, so trying to incorporate low damage aspects. Yeah, obviously life safety still has to be absolutely the top priority, but in addition to that also seeing that a building isn't severely damaged after an earthquake. So this is about putting somehow sacrificial elements in that you can easily come in and fix, replace? Yeah, certainly sacrificial elements is one one aspect. So there's always been a, an element that there will be a sacrificial component, and that sacrificial component has traditionally been one of the structural members. Yeah. The trouble is that can't be changed out. So... You can move to a, a sacrificial component, which can be more easily replaced. So rather than being a, a key structural element, it's actually an additional component. But essentially the building can maintain all its gravity load paths and everything um, with one component being changed out. The, the next step is to actually go to something that doesn't suffer any damage. So there is ways of absorbing energy and transferring load, providing force-limiting fuses and things, um, but doing that in a way where there's no damage. So in a way that you don't necessarily have to go in and actually replace anything after an earthquake. So that's you know, different levels of objectives, uh, more and more higher performance. Obviously a, a replaceable sacrificial component is better than the structural element, but something that actually doesn't suffer damage and doesn't need any maintenance after an earthquake is better again. Because this is tricky because you basically have to design a building that can move in some way. It's got to be able to move in response to an earthquake. Yeah, it's one of those things that if you just make the building more and more rigid, you increase the demand a lot, and you can also increase the accelerations that are felt by occupants. So there is uh, Northridge Hospital is the, the classic example in the field where they, initially they had a building which was damaged. They made a very, very stiff, rigid building, and the building itself stood up quite well, but then a lot of the non-structural elements, the cemented ceilings, the partition walls, huge damage to all those things. And unfortunately, you do have this issue where when you go to a higher performance objective, it comes to a point you need to address the next weakest link in the chain. Um, so obviously the, the immediate occupancy is the ideal outcome, where essentially immediately after an earthquake the building is entirely usable and maybe it gets evacuated for a quick inspection, but then we can come back in. But for that to occur, everything needs to survive really well. So the, not just the primary structure coming through without damage, you also need all the non-structural components, all the fire protection, all the acoustic insulation, all of these things have to perform so unfortunately when you go to a high performance objective, you basically a higher demand on all of those things. 
Um, under the conventional thinking, if you're only looking at life safety and allowing egress out of the building, if the acoustic insulation is is impaired or if you've got damage to your partition walls and your doors don't open and shut nicely, none of that really matters. But when you're trying to, to strive for more, then all those things start to come back into play. What's happened here in Christchurch? Because I'm sitting talking to you in Christchurch. It's been 10 years since the first Darfield earthquake and then followed six months later by the Christchurch earthquake. Um, what's different now about the buildings that have been built in Christchurch? Are we building these new low-damage buildings? So there is a, a lot more low-damage design being used within the rebuild of Christchurch. So at the time of the earthquakes in 2010 and 2011, uh, the Christchurch Women's Hospital was the only base-isolated building in Christchurch. So there was, we had one base-isolated building. The last time I looked at it, I think there was about 16. So that is a significant advance, uh, and that will certainly help base isolations sort of widely regarded as one of the gold standards. Quickly remind me how it works. So this is essentially um, providing a decoupling between the the ground and the building. So without essentially some some relative horizontal motion, so rather than forcing the entire building to move with the ground as it shakes, essentially allowing the building to stay more or less where it is and just allowing the ground to shake horizontally underneath it. So that just means that the, the large horizontal shaking that gets created during an earthquake doesn't actually get transmitted up into the building. It's attenuated out through that isolation layer. So a well-known example of that in Wellington's Taipapa. Yes, it is. What other things are you seeing being introduced here? There's also um, concepts like uh, rocking frames. So essentially, rather than accepting that you're going to damage and, and deform a structural element, you can have sort of a controlled rocking. And this is actually quite a low level of rocking. We might have a wall that is actually um, decoupled from the foundation, so rather than actually being intrinsically connected into the foundation, you've actually got a, a break point there, which is controlled so it can't slide or, or walk its way away as it rocks back and forward. What we normally see there is that they might be held down with a, a steel tendon, so it's a bit like an elastic band made of high-strength steel that clamps everything down. So under a low level of demand, such as in a windstorm or a low level of earthquake, it will behave just like a conventional structure where the wall's linked directly into the foundation. At a really high level of demand, under a really strong earthquake, there'll just be this little the movement will act at the base. So when you say rocking, it really is a bit like a rocking chair. It's it is a bit, yeah. back and forth. Yes. So essentially realising that if, if you're in a boxing ring and someone punches you, the worst thing you can do in terms of feeling that is to stand hard up against the punch. Like any impact, you know, if you, if you move a little bit with it, that cushions it. We can't now and can't ever control the way in which the ground shakes and what we can do is control the way in which buildings interact with that ground shaking so every earthquake is different Um, one thing we know for sure is that the next earthquake won't be the same as any earthquake we've had before but they do have broad characteristics so we know broadly how the natural period of vibration of a building how that interacts with the the ground shaking, controlling where the natural period of the building sits relative to the likely frequency content that's going to be in the ground. So traditionally under the old sacrificial damage approach, um, the, the damage that occurs within a building does have some advantages in that the building softens a little bit as it undergoes that damage, which actually lengthens the period. And at the longer period of vibration, there's actually less intensity in the ground shaking. So the, while it, the damage has a significant problem in terms of long-term recovery of the society, it does have some really good advantageous characteristics in terms of how the building responds within the earthquake. So it's really capturing that same advantageous relationship, but doing so without the damage. So where's your research got to in this area? Where are you up to? 
It's certainly a team effort. It's <laughs> no one operates in isolation because essentially you've got people all over the world, um, particularly around the Pacific Rim. Oh, that'll be the Pacific Ring of Fire then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> brought together by a, a common threat from from Mother Nature. So, with a lot of the um, large large scale shake table tests that we're doing to to test design methods at a whole of building level uh, occurring in, in China at Tongshu University. So they have a, a really large shake table there that's, that's um, well beyond anything we have in New Zealand. So what is a shake table? Is just what it sounds like? Yeah, it's a, a large steel table with a lot of hydraulic actuators in it and it basically shakes the, the table back and forward to simulate ground shaking. So how big is this table in China? Uh, so they, they actually have four individual tables that set up in a, a big long trough so they can actually simulate bridge tests as well if they want to space out underneath a bridge pier. The, the payload of the tables is 140 tonne, so it is a pretty significant amount of weight that you're shaking around. The hydraulics that are used to drive that uh, peak out about three, three megawatt of electricity that it draws, so it's a significant power draw. So do you build scale models in a way and then subject them to different kinds of earthquakes on this table? So there are a few ways of doing it. One is to, to have scale models and, and do just that. The other thing is at a smaller level you can actually do a full-scale test. So, one of And the you've done one of those? We did, yep. So a few years ago we had uh, a large test that was actually funded by the MB Building System Performance um, along with some co-funding from China and it was a 10 metre by 6 metre footprint, uh, 9 metres tall, basically a full-scale of a, a small building. Incorporated a lot of the New Zealand the low damage design details which have been used in New Zealand and was testing that at a, a system level whole of building test. So what were some of those individual things that were incorporated into that building? So one of the key things was um, the reinforced concrete rocking walls so that was the, the same design detail we've talked about just actually proving that at a full scale. There's also some beam column connection details so where the horizontal beam frames into the vertical column um, there were some some particular design details there to, to reduce damage, both to the, the structural frame and also to the floors. You put the building on the shake table, then what did you do? So it went through 39 different earthquakes, um, different intensities, some at very high intensity, and it was also a lot of different design configurations, so we could basically experimentally prove the impact of different design assumptions and the different design details. And did you have it rigged out with sensors so you can... D- collect data on what's happening? Yeah, we did. Um, we had 380 channels of data coming off that, so we were recording accelerations, uh, displacements, strains, all sorts of things from all over the structure, so very, very high density of, of sensors in there to really understand the way in which the building behaved. And did the components behave the way you expected them to? Yes, overall they did. It was great. And so what's happening next? That that was a single building that, that behaved well, are you going to go and use the shake table again? I'm involved in two more tests that are coming up, um, one being a scaled-down high-rise. That's a one-fifth scale of a, a high-rise. That's actually a project with the University of British Columbia in Vancouver and also Tongshi University in Shanghai, China. And that's taking what's traditionally sort of a, a construction method that's applicable worldwide but is, is used more in Vancouver and looking at ways to modify that to make that design more resilient. And then that's actually a one-fifth scale of the, the high-rise. So it's still 16, 17 metres tall, 140 tonne, and um, it's still a significant thing to be shaking around. Is it going to get 39 earthquakes too? It will, certainly. Um, it'll be that, hopefully more if we, can, if we can get the budget to stretch to, to cover all the lab fees. Hopefully we'll go beyond that as well. 
must take a, a bit of time to do this because you, you need to do one earthquake simulation and then stop and measure and test, I would think, and before you can do the next one. The table we use doesn't actually have vertical accelerations. It can't, can't shake vertically, but it has both horizontal directions. So we tend to shake it in one direction, and then we'll shake it in the other independently, and then also shake it in simultaneously in both directions because... It's very easy when you design these things to sort of think about the two, the two directions independently, but of course in the real world is 3D and things actually shake in 3D when they go. Um, while 39 earthquakes at you know even at 30 seconds of time, that's that's only 14 minutes of actual true testing that, that spread over several weeks. What magnitude earthquake could you test up to? It's always hard to re- link to a particular magnitude because um, it's, it's both the magnitude and the, the distance from it. We were certainly shaking up to levels beyond that which were seen in Christchurch in 2011. So you can vary the shaking. Do you vary the period as well so that you know it might be a slow shake versus a fast shake? So what we tend to do in, um, is we, we take earthquake records which have been recorded around the world. So um, El Centro in the US in the late 1980s is one that gets used very, very widely. It has quite broad frequency content in it. We essentially chose a few recorded earthquake from around the world which matched largely the New Zealand design spectrum so that's sort of earthquakes which are broadly representative of the type of earthquake that we designed to in New Zealand. So you've got an apartment building in China to test what what else? We've got another test coming up which is a steel building using a lot of the latest design um, concepts and low damage steel construction in New Zealand. What's going to happen in the next few decades do you think? Is there going to be some great leaps forward or will it just be continual incremental refinement? So there's a lot of ongoing work in terms of um, partition walls, ceilings, piping, all those things, in terms of the non-structural elements that, that go into a building. So um, that's a huge area of ongoing work. It's obviously happening anyway. There is low damage buildings going ahead, but there could be more incentives and, and, and more ways to facilitate wider use of that. So at the moment there's no requirement for it? No, there's no requirement to, to go beyond sort of the, the code-compliant building is really one that's life-safe. There's not really uh, any requirement to go beyond that. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff Rogers is an earthquake engineer at the University of Canterbury and a member of Quake Corps. And that's the show for this year. It's been an interesting year. Science and scientists have been in the headlines a lot, and nature certainly came to the fore during lockdown. Over RNZ's summer break, I'll be tuning in between 7 and 8 on Sunday and Monday mornings with my summer science retrospective. The podcast series Voice of the Kākāpō and Voices from Antarctica are playing at quarter past six on weekday evenings. You can revisit any of this year's stories, or last year's, or the past decade and beyond, on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. There's plenty there to keep you entertained and you'll find the Summer Science Selection at the Collections tab. Why not subscribe to us as a podcast? And keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. I'll be back next year, but for now, it's season's greetings and good night from me, Alison Balance. Take care. Paul Mario. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 